Now hear God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And these who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Amen. Let's pray to our God this morning as we come before his holy word, which stands forever. Our God and our Father, Be with us as we come before your word this morning. Holy Spirit, would you give us insight? Would you give us understanding of these words that the Apostle Paul has penned? Not only by not his own hand, but Father, as your Holy Spirit moved and worked through him. And as these words were breathed out by you, we pray, Father, that we would understand that these, before they are Paul's words, are your words, living words, active words, infallible and inerrant words, capable, Father, of transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds. And so would you help us understand, and would you help us not to only be hearers of your word this morning, but to become more and more doers of your word, would you continue the work that you have begun in us of transforming us, of conforming us into the very image of Jesus Christ from one level of glory to the next, even as we encounter your living and active word this morning? Pierce us with it as the double edged sword that it is, and do whatever work in us you need to do. Father, we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Galatians today for a reason last, well, for two reasons. Um, one is that I had a busy week and needed to go back to a sermon that I'd written before. And the other is that it is the sermon that I believe God wanted for us today in His providence in orchestrating that busy week even. Last week, you remember in our study of Acts 23, we saw an example of Paul doing something that's critically important for us as Christians to learn how to do in our own lives. We saw an example of, in Paul's life, of what it looks like to respond to a hard, difficult situation in your life, in the flesh, and then to be constrained by the Word of God to begin to turn and walk instead of walking in the flesh, to walk according to 
the Spirit. Have you ever had a time like that where something's really, really hard in your life and you react sort of reflexively and instinctively and then the Holy Spirit brings the Word of God to your mind or some person brings the Word of God to your mind and says, hey, you are not walking in concert with God's Word and then you realize that means you are not walking in step with God's Spirit and now you know you're at a crossroads and you have a decision to make and you need to repent And turn from walking according to the flesh and begin again to walk according to the Spirit in the way that you deal with whatever this situation is in. Ever been there at that crossroads? You have a hundred times a day probably or more. This is the battle of the Christian life. This is the dilemma that we face all the time. And what we do at the crossroads is we give in to the impulse that Satan confirms in our ear and tries to deceive us with that says, well, look, you have no other choice but to keep walking according to the flesh because of how you're feeling and what's going on that's out of your control and you can't do anything about it. And the Holy Spirit would say to us today, that's a lie from the devil. There is something that God has given you to do about it. There is no temptation that you can face at that crossroads that isn't common unto man and that the Lord hasn't given you a way of escaping from. The the reality is that at that crossroads, no matter how tempted you are to rage with anger in your flesh or to succumb to lust in your flesh or to give in to whatever fleshly impulse it is, there is no situation in which your only option that is possible is to sin if you're a Christian. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 10.31. There's always a way of escape. The Lord has given you His indwelling Holy Spirit, and by His grace and through His Word, the strength and the power to be able to turn that corner and walk according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh in whatever situation you find yourself in and with whatever temptation you find yourself in. Facing, And that's what Paul did, right? In Acts 23, he had been unjustly, falsely accused. He had almost been beaten to death. He had been unjustly punched in the mouth at the, at the wicked order of the high priest Ananias. And Paul's initial reaction was just to revile Ananias, the high priest. And then it was pointed out to Paul that he was wrong for reviling Ananias because the scripture says he shouldn't do that. And as soon as Paul recognized that he was out of step with God's will, which is revealed in God's word, what did he do? He acknowledged it. He said, you know what? It doesn't matter how I feel right now. It doesn't matter how unjustly I've been treated right now. You're right. I shouldn't be reviling him. And so Paul quoted the scripture himself, Exodus chapter 22, and admitted that it was wrong for him to revile a leader that God had put over him, no matter how wicked that leader is. He acknowledged that he had blown it. He acknowledged that his behavior was out of step with the word of God, with the spirit of God, and he turned from that behavior and reoriented himself according to the spirit. And that's when God showed him that he was in this position for a purpose that his affliction was not the biggest problem that he was facing, that God had allowed it in order to give him an opportunity to proclaim the the great truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Pharisees that he'd been brought before. And so, Paul was walking according to the Spirit because he recognized his need to step out of the flesh and step back into the Spirit. 
And what we saw him do there in Acts chapter 23 is what he defines in this passage here in Galatians chapter 5. This is what he exhorts us all to be doing on a regular basis, more and more and more, getting better and better at it in our lives as Christians. It's it's all laid out here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify those desires of the flesh that you feel within you, that are tempting you, that are pulling you towards taking the wrong turn at that crossroads. If you're walking according to the Spirit, you have all the resources that you need not to succumb to those temptations, not to yield to them, not to cave into those desires and gratify them, but to walk and live according to the Spirit and do things in spite of what's going on around you and in spite of how you feel that honor and glorify God. Now, this is such a massively foundational and important part of the Christian life that that's why I want to talk about it this morning again with you from Galatians 5. Walking by the Spirit. It's so important, and yet... It's something that a lot of Christians really struggle to understand. What does it mean? It's something that a lot of Christians really struggle to to know how to apply. How do I do it? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? How do I walk by the Spirit? And so this morning, this is why I wanted to pop back over into Galatians with you and dwell on this passage together for our time today because it's so centrally significant in the Christian life. So many Christians can quote Bible verses to you all day and tell you about systematic theology all day, but they're walking in the flesh all day. And they're not walking according to the Spirit. And this is what Paul boils it all down to. If, if what you're memorizing and reading and understanding from God's Word and what you understand theologically is to have any importance and significance and meaning at all, then it must be teaching you to walk according to the Spirit and to start to live more and more in ways that that glorify this God that you're quoting scriptures about and to honor this Lord who has revealed Himself in these verses. So, there's a lot of rich, meaty truth here to take in, and we're not gonna, there's no way to cover it all in one sermon, but we're just gonna jump in right here in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5, which is our, our foundation and anchor point for understanding what Paul is defining here. The context of this letter, which Paul wrote to a, a group of churches, really. That, that had been planted by him during his missionary journeys that we've seen in Acts in the province of Galatia, the context is that now these churches that he's planted are, are, are facing the reality of false teaching. There's a group of false teachers who are promoting a particular false teaching that basically shared a lot of similarities with the issue that we saw the Jerusalem Council take up in Acts chapter 15. Do you remember? It's essentially the issue of legalism with regard to the Gentiles, right? Gentile Christians were being told by Jewish people who called themselves Christians that in some way, shape, or form, their salvation, the Gentile salvation, depended on their adhering to certain Jewish customs. Fine, you accept Jesus as your Messiah, but you cannot be saved unless you do these things. 
unless you be circumcised, unless you adhere to the dietary laws, and unless you do all of these other customary Jewish traditions, your salvation depends on you doing those things. And the council took that up and said, no, you're saved by grace through faith alone. You don't have to do all those things as prerequisites for salvation, but once you are saved by the grace of Jesus, you had better be learning to live your lives apart from the idolatry that you once lived in and in ways that glorify God, right? This is the same kind of false teaching that's now found its way up into the province of Galatia in Asia Minor, and the Christians there are being confused by it. And so here, in the whole book of Galatians, and and in Galatians 5, Paul is disputing that legalism. And he's arguing that in verse 13, we are called to freedom in Jesus Christ. And what he's doing there is emphasizing the gracious nature of the gospel. You're saved by grace alone. You don't have to be burdened by all of those works that you need to do in order to get saved, that those false teachers are telling you. You're called to freedom, to be able to just trust Christ and rest in Christ for your salvation, right? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Salvation is a free gift of God. It's not something that you earn by doing good works. But at the same time, Paul is insisting this freedom that we have in Christ to be saved apart from works that we do doesn't mean a freedom from holiness, doesn't mean a freedom from God's law. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, apart from works, but that doesn't mean now that you don't have to be growing in obedience as a saved person. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Galatians 5. The freedom in Christ isn't a freedom from holiness. And so he says in verse 13, you were called to freedom, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is the major anchor point that we need to fix ourselves to in understanding Paul's definition of the gospel and the Christian life that we live now as redeemed people. The freedom that Paul's proclaiming doesn't mean freedom to live contrary to God's law now because, hey, we're saved, we've got an e-ticket to heaven, it doesn't matter what we do anymore. If you think like that, then you don't really trust Jesus and you haven't really believed the gospel. So the freedom that Paul is proclaiming means freedom from having to secure your salvation, your position before God by your own efforts. It means a freedom of resting wholly in Christ and His work for you in order to be redeemed and saved from the wrath of God. And then his point is, with regard to the place that holiness has in our lives, is that it always must be necessarily the product of that freedom. And specifically, the product of the love of God in us. It's the love of God that has delivered us from His wrath. It's the love of God through Christ on the cross that has saved us. And if we have true faith in that love of God, it will be rendering holiness in us. It will be forging in us a love for God and for one another that will change the way we live in a a growing and progressing manner. So Paul is saying that when we rest in Christ, when Jesus' blood and righteousness are all our hope and stay. 
and not our own efforts, then our hearts start to be changed and stirred by God to love Him and to love one another. And that love looks a certain way according to His Word. Now this is the same thing that Jesus taught, isn't it? Jesus said to the legalistic Pharisees who were doing things on the outside really, really well and really, really precisely, but inwardly didn't love God and didn't love one another, he said to these self-righteous Pharisees that the, even though they were obeying all these laws outwardly, they were, they were not obeying the most important laws on the inside of their hearts. What are the greatest commandments? They're both rooted and grounded, Jesus says, in love. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. And if those two laws are dominating your heart, more than I love anything in this world, more than I love anything about myself, I love my God and I love other people. If those two laws are dominating your heart, then the holiness of God will be what you do in your life. And that's Paul's foundation here too. He's saying true holiness, true obedience in our lives can't ever come from, can't ever be generated by or driven by self-serving motives like guilt or like fear or like pride like the Pharisees. Or like greed, which is how often we try to motivate ourselves to do things that are good on the outside. We say, if I do it, then it's going to get something for me. And I'll only do it if it gets something for me. And if it doesn't, then I'll say, well, forget that. I'm going to go do something else that's going to get me what I want more. True obedience for God can't be driven by any of those self-serving motives. True holiness in life is only driven by love for God. Where does that come from? How do you, how do you, how do you get your heart to love God? Well, the Holy Spirit has to change it, has to make it alive, and then you have to meditate day and night on the reality of how much He has loved you in order to redeem you and save you from the wrath to come. And that begins to change your heart and make you love Him which will make you hate sin and desire more and more to do things that are holy and honoring to God. All of this is echoing what John also says in 1 John chapter 3, or chapter 5 and verse 3 rather. This is what John says. He says, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. You want to know what it looks like to love God? Keep His commandments. That's what it looks like to love God. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and that His commandments are not burdensome, John says. That you're not just doing them out of this rote sense of duty or obligation or fear or guilt or shame or greed. Because if I do these things, then I'll get good things for me. Or by pride, if I do these things, everybody will be impressed with me. That's not love for God. Love for God is I love God so much that it's easy for me to do things that please Him. And so the big question that, that we ask and that Paul, I believe, helps us to answer in the book of Galatians is, is how? How can obedience to God become not burdensome? 
How can our lives become such that it's easier and easier as we're going along for us to obey God, not because we're afraid of what might happen if we don't, but because we want to more and more, more than we want to do things that displease Him. How, how can that become more and more the reality in my life, a growing reality of loving God by obeying Him in a way that isn't burdensome? Because my desires are changing from what self wants to what God wants. How can that become the reality? How do we get there? Well, one side of that answer is if it's up to you, you can't get there. If it's up to me and my strength and what I have naturally capable of in my own strength, I can't do it. According to my own natural inclinations, it's just not possible for you to wake up in the morning and feel as much or more concern for the glory of God and the needs of other people as you feel for your own needs, is, that's utterly beyond your strength and your power and your ability to do. If the Christian life means loving God and caring for others, even when that means you're not getting any of your needs met and you're suffering, then that indeed is hard and impossible for us. But praise be to God, right? The gospel is all about what God does for us and also in us and through us. The gospel is not just about how he saves us from the wrath that is to come. It is how once he saves us from the wrath that is to come, he begins to transform our lives through the renewing of our minds by changing our hearts to desire holiness more than sinfulness, to desire his glory more than our own selfish desires. He's the one who can do that. His power is powerful to change our hearts. And this is the freedom that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 5. What he's proclaiming is that through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in the promises of the gospel, God will not only deliver you from everlasting damnation, He will change our hearts, He will change our wills, He will change our desires, so that more and more, not all at once, but more and more, we will begin to crave nothing more than His glory. And that sounds great, right? But again, the big question is, how does that happen? What's the key to becoming a person who loves God and puts others before self? How can I become a person who is not driven by my own sinful, selfish desires, but but is consumed with seeing God glorified no matter what the cost, and who is consumed with seeing other people's needs met even if I'm not getting my own needs met? What's the key to becoming that guy? Well, the key is what Paul reveals here in Galatians 5. Again, verse 16. The key is learning to walk by the Spirit. Notice the promise here. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's pretty good. That's a pretty awesome promise, right? For all of us who see our sin and and hate it and feel the burden of it, and it makes us wonder if really the love of God is in us at all, and and so we'd rather just not have sin, rather not have sinful desires and keep keep caving into them all the time? For all of us who who see our sin, for all of us who hate it, for all Christians who want so much to just love and glorify and honor God, but our sin is just constantly getting in the way, what a great promise that not only did Jesus die so that the penalty of sin eternally is removed, 
but he is also supplying us with the sanctifying power to not carry out the desires of the flesh. So he's, he's not only given us victory over sin on the cross, he's also giving us victory day by day over sin's power in our lives. And so in those times when the Christian life seems too hard and we have to remember that we're not called to live it on our own, this is what God gives us to assure us that we're not left in our own strength. We're called to live and to walk by the Spirit of God. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the command to love God, the command to love one another in the, in the same self-sacrificing way that Jesus has loved us, this is not some new legalistic burden that, that God lays on our backs. It'll become a burdensome law, right? To love as Christ's love is, is a massive burden if I try to do that in my own strength. To love God in, instead of self is a, is a massive burden if I try to do it by my own means. But the will of God is this, that, that when we walk by the Spirit, love for God and love for others will begin more and more to freely pour out of our lives. So, the reality is this. According to God's design, true life consists in loving God by submitting to Him in holiness and in loving others by considering them more significant than ourselves, Philippians chapter 2, just like Christ. And people who try to do that, love like that, without relying on God's Spirit, will always wind up trying to fill their own emptiness, meet their own needs, rather than being filled with the fullness of God and, and sharing the overflow with others. The reality is that because of sin, love isn't easy for us. The reality is that if we, if we try to live this way in our own strength and for our own purposes, it will be a burden for us to try to love others and, as Christ did and, and to love God. Think about the man who, who walks according to the flesh when he's in a disagreement with his wife and so he gets in a fight with her and he says mean things to her and fellowship is torn apart. And he feels terrible about that. He's at work and he feels miserable for the way that he's treated his wife because his heart has been filled with anger and resentment and frustration. So on his way home, he stops and he buys his wife this big, beautiful bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates. He gets home and he gives these to her. And she's touched. She gives him a big hug and a kiss. And they have a nice evening together, tension-free. Was the man loving his wife? Well, maybe, hopefully, but not necessarily. The answer to the question, was the man loving his wife, really only gets answered by asking this question, was what he did done in order to please his wife or in order to appease his wife? Did he really bring those flowers out of a purely selfless motive? Or was he really just attempting to gain her favor for himself by doing something that he knew she would respond to? 
Was the goal really her joy, her blessing, or the alleviation of his own misery? Was he just making an investment in her so that he would get the dividends? And is that really love, if so? And don't we all do that kind of thing all the time and then want to be patted on the back for how loving we've been? Right? Don't we let our, our, ourselves get away all the time with, with reaching out to somebody as long as they're going to reach back to us with something we need? Scratch somebody else's back just so they'll scratch ours and then we call that love. Jesus says something about greater love has no man that, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That he would literally give everything with no expectation of return in order to bless somebody else. And isn't that what Jesus did? True, biblical, Christ-life, sacrificial, count the cost without regard for self, love, that love is not easy for us. <laughs> But the good news is that it isn't primarily our work that produces that kind of love in us. It's God's work in us. And what we need to do in order for God to be at work in us in in a way that renders that kind of love in our hearts, what we need to do is to learn to walk by the Spirit so that it's not the desires of our own flesh that we're catering to and carrying out. But instead, we're being driven by the love of God to love Him no matter what the cost and to love others no matter what the cost. And all of that begs three important questions which we have to ask with regard to verse 16 of Galatians 5 here today. First of all, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And secondly, what does it matter? Why is it important that we walk by the Spirit? And thirdly, very practically, how can we walk by the Spirit? What, why, and how? Those are the questions that Paul answers in this text. And the first one, of course, is is really the most foundational one. What does Paul mean when he says that we must walk by the Spirit? And there are two verses here in this passage and in the context of this passage today that shed light on what it means to walk by the Spirit. The first one is verse 18. Look at it. Galatians 5, verse 18, Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, all the way down in verse 22, where Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. So, in answer to the question, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means this. Walking by the Spirit means being led by the Spirit so that your life is producing the fruit of the Spirit. Simple and impossible. Simple and so hard. Walking by the Spirit means being led by the Spirit so that our lives produce the fruit of the Spirit. Think about this first thing. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Notice what Paul doesn't say there. Notice that he doesn't say, if you follow the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? He says, if you're led by the Spirit, what's the difference? 
right? Doesn't one imply the other one? Sort of, but there's actually a really big significant difference there, right? Because by saying, if you are led by the Spirit, Paul is placing the primary emphasis on the Spirit's work of leading before our effort in following. Think of the difference, by way of illustration, between a pace car in a NASCAR race, the difference between that and a locomotive on a railroad track. That's the difference. The pace car in the race simply shows the way and establishes the pace. And then it's up to the drivers behind them to drive the car and keep their foot on the gas and to put in all the effort necessary in order to follow that pace car. And Paul is saying that's not how it works. It works more like a locomotive. Because a locomotive doesn't just define the pace, doesn't just define the direction. The locomotive ensures that the cars behind it are following because it is pulling them. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's the Spirit's work in you and not your work on your own that's being emphasized here. We do not follow in our own strength. Jesus is not just a good example and then we follow after Him the best that we can. This is not just a a matter of what would Jesus do and then we set out to try to do it in the strength that we can muster within ourselves. Now if we're going to get where Jesus is in terms of holiness and in terms of eternal blessing, it will have to be by relying and depending on the power that Jesus provides and not on the power that we have within ourselves. So walking by the Spirit means first staying hooked up to the divine source of power that enables us to go where He leads and to get there. Because the only other option is self-reliance, and self-reliance is flesh-reliance. And as we're going to see here today in just a bit, relying on the flesh never accomplishes anything good because our flesh is dominated by sin. And then the second thing that Paul says in verse 22 in terms of what walking by the Spirit means, first it means being led by the Spirit, second it means our lives will be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Here again, it's the, it's the, it's the Spirit's work that's emphasized, isn't it? And if you've ever seen fruit grow, you understand that. Again, Jesus teaches this same kind of thing. In John 15 and verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, because as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you. You can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I abide in him, he bears much fruit, because apart from me you can't do anything, right? Fruit can't form itself by its own effort on the vine or on the branch, right? There's got to be an organic process whereby the nutrients and the water are coming from the soil through the roots and into the tree and causing that reaction that, 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 that causes fruit to be born, produced. And so the emphasis is on the source 
which of course here is the Holy Spirit. How is the fruit of holiness born in our lives? Jesus says it's by abiding in me, being rooted in me, so that my life is supplying the nutrients and the living water necessary for you to, abide, uh, uh, you to produce fruit. What's Paul say here? How is the fruit of the Holy Spirit born in our lives? It's by the Spirit being in our lives and by walking in Him. God the Holy Spirit bears this fruit in us by causing our hearts to be changed towards dispositions of love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest, out of which comes the fruit of obedience to God, blessing others instead of cursing them, seeking their good instead of our own, even in the midst of conflict and trial and affliction, those kinds of things. So walking in the Spirit means... Abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine from which the power of God's Spirit flows into our lives as the Holy Spirit abides in us. And so the answer, very simply to the first question, what is walking by the Spirit? The answer is it is being led by the Spirit's power and direction to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And again, the work of God's Spirit is what is emphasized. Even at the same time, implicitly under that emphasis, there is this responsibility that we have, right? It's, it's not just let go and let God sit back passively and let God make fruit come out of you. There is something we have to do, and we do it by His grace and strength alone. And this is where Paul highlights in verse 17 the, the battle that rages within us that we have the responsibility to fight. The desires of the flesh, me, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Spirit and flesh are, Paul says, mortal enemies within us. And they are opposed to one another and they have absolutely conflicting, opposing desires and, and goals for my life. And the question is, which one do I rely on? Which one do I trust? Which one do I depend on? Which one do I allow to direct the course of my life at those crossroads? Which one do I, I choose minute by minute to walk according to? Am I marching to the beat of God's Spirit within me or to the beat of my own fleshly desires because I think that's going to get me somewhere better than where God's Spirit wants me to go? So in that way, walking by the Spirit involves my will, right? It involves things I do and choices I'm responsible to make. First and foremost, I must desire to be connected to the power of the Spirit I must choose to abide in Christ. Because if I don't, I will desire to be driven by the flesh more and more. And there are things that I have to do for that desire in my life to be coupled to Christ. So that my desires are, are defined more and more by what He desires. And, and that that dominates my life more and more. And that all has to do with the how. How do, how do I do that question? And we'll get there, but first we have to ask the why question. Why is it so critically important for me, for us, to walk by the Spirit? 
And here in this passage, Paul gives us two reasons why. One in verse 16 and one in verse 18. Verse 16 gives us the incentive for walking by the Spirit. And the incentive is this, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And notice there, that's that's the language of promise, isn't it? And not first and foremost the language of command. Walk by the Spirit is a command, but the the incentive is, is promise. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's a promise. The verb to carry out is not in the imperative tense. It's not a command. It's a promised reality that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that's a pretty good promise, isn't it? Pretty good reason to walk according to the Spirit, right? Because Paul says here, and he says all throughout the New Testament, if we're people who aren't doing that, if we're people who are, who are terminally walking according to the flesh, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if we are walking by the Spirit, and learning to more and more and more, and bearing the fruit that comes from that more and more and more, we will be shown, as Peter says, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of Christ. That's a good reason. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. This is the other side of the coin from what he says down in verse 22 about the fruit of the Spirit. That's the positive, right? Being led by the Spirit means that the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in us and through us. Well, the negative is, therefore, that which is opposed to the Spirit, that which is contrary to the Spirit's fruit, those desires of the flesh... They will not be gratified in us when we are walking according to the Spirit. It doesn't mean you won't have those desires. It just means you'll know the source of power not to gratify them. And then he gives us a big diagnostic here, doesn't it? Isn't it wonderful when you get a, a diagnostic tool to know whether or not you're walking according to the flesh? Verse 19, well, the works of the flesh are evident. You go, how do I know if I'm walking according to the flesh? Well, it's easy, Paul says. It's evident. Do you desire sexual immorality in your life? Are there times when you desire impurity or sensuality or idolatry or sorcery or enmity or strife? Or do you feel jealousy pulling you? If you do, those are the desires of the flesh. And and, and, and at the crossroads, if you say... I'm going to let jealousy define my relationship to this person and how I treat this person right now, then you're walking according to the flesh. And you have a choice to say, I'm not going to do that. By God's power, I'm going to walk according to the Spirit now. Men, do you have a desire for sexual immorality? Which is readily available now on your smartphone or any computer. You feel that desire? You feel that temptation? You have a choice. Am I going to let it Pull me? Lead me? Or or am I going to say no to it by the power of God's Spirit within me and say I'm going to walk according to the Spirit? Did somebody do something to hurt you? Did they punch you in the mouth metaphorically and really tick you off? And do you have a desire towards strife and anger and rivalry and dissension and division and fits of rage? Or towards going home and feeling sorry for yourself and indulging in drunkenness and things like that? Those are the, 
Those are the, it's the diagnostic tool. Those are the deeds of the flesh. Those are the temptations and the desires of the flesh that are at war with the Spirit of God. And if you walk by the Spirit, even though you'll feel those desires and temptations, you won't carry them out if you're walking by the Spirit. That's a good promise. They will not be gratified in you if you're walking by the Spirit. When we are being led by the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit, instead of being driven by jealousy in my relationship to this person or rage with relationship to this person or lust or greed or whatever it is, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, which will bless them and honor God. These selfish, sinful, idolatrous desires will be overwhelmed. It's a promise when we are being led by the Spirit. On the other side, we yield to the temptations. We entertain the sinful thoughts and attitudes. We do the sinful things when we choose to, instead of being led by the Spirit, instead of walking in the Spirit, we choose to walk in the flesh. This feels, you know what, God, I know, but this feels better. And I'm entitled to it because of what they did or because of what I went through. And so I get to indulge a little because it'll make me feel good. That's what we do. You don't have to do that. You can say, no, it's not about me. It's about your glory and it's about their blessing and I'm going to walk according to the Spirit instead. And He will give you the power to do it. But our sinful flesh is at war with the Spirit of God within us to convince us that we should do that that we're entitled to do that, that we'll be better off if we do that. And that there's no possibility for us not to do that because of how hard it is, which is just unbelief because you're saying that those desires have more power than the Holy Spirit. They're stronger than Him. He can't overpower them. That's what Satan's telling you. And you're believing it every time you yield. That's why you carry out the desires of your flesh. That's important to understand. I told you there's a lot to take in here. It's fire hose time. It's, it's important to understand what Paul means by flesh. He says, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is the flesh? When the Greek word for flesh, it's the, it's the Greek word sarx, when it first came to be used in Greek culture, it referred to your skin, this soft, squishy, fleshy part of your body. And over time, it came to denote the physical body as a whole, the material part of a person, and then it sort of came to refer to the whole person, to your your bodily existence, to your natural desires. And in that sense, flesh isn't an intrinsically bad thing. God made your flesh. God made your body. It's not bad. God created us as living, feeling people with bodies out of the dust of the ground and said it was good. But when Paul uses the word flesh, he uses it in the sense that our natural human desires, our cravings and impulses and passions, now because of sin, they're originating out of our sinfulness and they're stained with our sin. That's what Paul means by flesh. Not just your body, but your natural desires as they are stained by your sin. And so for Paul, that's what it means. It's referring to the corruption of sin that determines and works through my my desires. 
Flesh means, for Paul, all the evil in me and all the evil that I am and all the evil that I do and that I'm capable of doing apart from God's grace. And, and remember what sin is, right? At the root level, the essence of sin is a rejection of God's authority. I'm, I'm not listening to you. I'm not doing what you say because I don't like what happens when I do and I think I can get better by doing it my way. That's what, that's what sin is. It's a commitment to self as final authority. So when Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about this sinful impulse to try to content myself with something other than God and His holiness and His glory and His mercy. Yeah, those may be good, but I, I, think, I'll, I think I'll do better if I do this. That's what sin is. That's what flesh is. And bearing that in mind, look down at verse 24 here of chapter 5 of Galatians. He says, Paul says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a reality. And compare that with the verse earlier in Galatians that I love to quote over and over and over and over and over again. It's, it's one of my life verses, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Put those verses together, see? In chapter 5, the flesh with its passions and sinful desires, which is crucified, is the me, is the I that is crucified in chapter 2. The flesh is the the central, core, self-absorbed, self-committed me that feels needs and desires and that absolutely despises the idea of depending on the mercy of God in Christ to meet those needs and satisfy those desires. I'm going to do it my own way. Paul says in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh, committed to the flesh, to doing what the flesh wants, is hostile towards God. Doesn't submit to God's law. And so the most basic mark of the flesh is this core, self-serving, unsubmissive attitude. I'll do what I want. So it's not surprising that verse 17 here of Galatians 5 paints a picture of this war that's raging between that flesh and God's Spirit who now indwells us. There is a profound struggle within us. And it's not just a struggle between explicitly wicked desires and explicitly righteous desires. It's ultimately a war to determine who rules my life. Is it going to be me looking to God and I'll trust Him if and I'll obey Him as long as He does whatever I need Him to do for me? Or am I going to say it is no longer I who even, I I don't, Christ lives in me. I'm going to live for His glory no matter what it costs. So if you look at your life and you say, well, you know, I don't really have temptation to these big, glaring, obvious, heinous sins. 
And you say, I'm not really struggling with grievous and blatant forms of wickedness in my life. Do not think that your flesh is not struggling against God's Spirit. Do not think that you've reached some plane of perfection. Because the, the flesh, your flesh, your sinful tendency will either turn to licentiousness and rampant immorality and sin in order to satisfy itself, or like a Pharisee, it will turn to legalistic morality, self-righteousness, self-reliance, and pride to satisfy itself. And neither one of those is more opposed or less opposed to God's Spirit. Both of those come from the flesh. So if you're not aware of ways in which your flesh struggles and opposes God's Spirit, that doesn't mean the struggle isn't happening. It just means that you're naive or arrogant. It means Satan has tricked you and you have fallen prey to his deception. Unless you have attained sinless perfection and you have not and neither have I, then there is plenty in your heart that is waging war against God's Spirit and we cannot think otherwise. And then hear this too, on the other side of that coin, if you are aware, painfully, constantly aware of the profound struggle within you between flesh, what you want, what these sinful desires are, and God's Spirit, that doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. If you're saying, Oh no, man, I'm, I'm aware there's a lot of flesh. Every day, every hour, every minute warring within me against the Spirit of God. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're a Christian who is aware of what's really going on. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires and zero temptations to sin. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. Conflict in your soul is not an indication that you don't belong to God. I mean, we wish and we long and we, we want so desperately to achieve the day when our sin is so fully destroyed that there is no conflict, but that's not going to happen on this sin-cursed earth and in your yet to be redeemed body. Your soul is redeemed. Your position is secure before God. Your body is still subject to decay. Sin remains in you. And your flesh is at war with the Spirit every single day. And there is something worse, if you're a Christian who senses that conflict... There is something worse than the battle between the flesh and the spirit in your life as you remain in this world. And that is this. That is a condition in which there is no battle between flesh and spirit in this world. Because that means that the flesh is controlling you entirely. You're not fighting. The spirit of God isn't in you to make war. And the flesh controls the city of your life and all of the outposts. And that is the life of an unbeliever in whose heart there is no struggle between the sinful flesh and God's Spirit. If you're struggling, that's a really good sign that the Spirit of God is in you and that you belong to Him 
And you just need to know, in the struggle, He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfectly godly tomorrow if you lay hold of all those things. It means you're going to be able to struggle and walk by the Spirit and grow bit by bit by bit as you approach the entrance to the eternal kingdom of Christ. And that's the encouragement, right? As desperately hard as our sinful, fleshly desires are for us to resist, they are no match for the Spirit of God. And we just have to convince ourselves of that and not listen to the lie that says, the desires are too strong and I can't resist them. You're right, you can't, but God in you can. Walk in Him and you will not gratify them. And in fact, what Paul is going to go on and declare to the Galatians in the rest of this book is that the victory of God's Spirit over our sinful fleshly desires has already been achieved. It's just a matter of believing that and claiming that victory. It doesn't mean you're not going to have the desires. It doesn't mean the war's not going to continue. What it means is that the doom of sin and the doom of your sinful flesh is already assured. There's guerrilla warfare going on in my life. There are insurgencies being mounted all the time because the capital city of my soul has been taken by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ has declared victory, but the insurgency is no match for the conquering victor of the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. And I need to have faith in that. Because the enemy of my flesh is none less than the Almighty God, the Holy Spirit. So the only way to fight the flesh is by the Spirit. That's what walking in the Spirit means. Live by His power and your sinful desires will be defeated. The bastions of fruitful righteousness will be established. And so we must walk by the Spirit because as we do, the flesh is more and more conquered. The insurgencies are more and more defeated. And then verse 18 very quickly gives us one more reason why walking according to the Spirit is crucial. Because if you are led by the Spirit, which is the same as walking by the Spirit we saw, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're free to live against the law or, or to live as if the law doesn't matter anymore or as if holiness doesn't matter. It simply means that when you are led by the power of the locomotive of God's Holy Spirit, you are cruising along the railroad track of the law. That's what the law is. It's like the track that's taking you towards glory as you grow in holiness more and more. So as you're hooked up to the locomotive, you're cruising along the track of the law as a joyful, God-honoring, God-loving way of living life instead of doing this with the railroad track. Jump off the train let the Holy Spirit go and say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the railroad tracks and this is John Piper's illustration and not mine and, and rip up the railroad tracks and say, I'm going to stick it in the ground like a ladder and climb up it in my own strength to get to heaven. Isn't that what we do? That's what Pharisees do. Never going to work. That's what living according to the law means. Rip up those tracks and try to climb hand over fist into heaven on my own strength. When you're led by the Spirit, you don't have to do that. You don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to get yourself to heaven by your own good merits. 
When you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the punishment or the curse or the oppression of the law because what the law requires, which is holiness, is what the Spirit is producing as He pulls you towards glory. And again, namely, what the Spirit is producing comes down to love. It's the right love of God and love of others. And, and it's the first mentioned fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. It's the headwater of all the other spiritual fruit and righteousness in our lives. If I love God and if I love others and, and not myself, holiness is what happens. The law of God demands perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. And it threatens everlasting punishment if I fail, which I will if I try to pull those tracks up and climb on my own. So to not be under the law means we're being led. And I never have to fear the the punishment of falling short because the very thing that God's law demands, He's creating and it's popping out of me like fruit on the branches of the life that He has redeemed. And that provides a powerful evidence of the Spirit's presence and power in me if I'm walking in Him. So, quickly, verse 16 tells us we walk by the Spirit because the result is that when we do, the sinful, evil desires of the flesh are conquered. Verse 18 says on the other side of that coin, the righteous, holy fruit of God's Spirit are being established. And those are the two reasons why. And then that leaves us, in the little time we have left, sorry, with the big million dollar question, which is how? Great, tell, how do I do it? Give me a list of things to do today and I'm going to go home and do them. And realize that you're a Pharisee, right? <laughs> that you're pulling up the tracks and climbing. Uh-oh. Maybe you've heard people put it like this passively. Um, on the other side, you, you just got to allow the Spirit to lead you, right? You just got to let go and let the Spirit control you and have you. It's not that either. <laughs> there is a command here. We must walk by the Spirit. And yes, He leads and supplies the power to do it. And it's His work in us that produces the fruit. But we must walk by the Spirit if it is to happen. How? If we put it all together, the answer is actually pretty simple. We walk by the Spirit and we allow Him to lead and control us when we rest in the Gospel, when we rest in God's promises so much that our hearts are content in Him, in what He's done for us, in what He's given to us, in what we have in Him. The flesh exercises its influence and its power in us when we're not content with God, when we're not content with Him being sovereign, when we're not content with His will, when we're not content with His love. I need something more when we're not content with His work in us. I think I could do it better. As soon as we take our eyes off of Him and what He has done for us, our flesh starts immediately, instantly, to do what it does best. It looks for ways to content itself with something other than God and His holiness and His mercy. It's like a, it's like a dog that's waiting to get in the house 
And as soon as you crack the door, bam, it doesn't lay there and go, oh, is it time to come in? And saunter, your flesh doesn't saunter. Your flesh will burst through any crack you give it. If you take your eyes off of him. The flesh looks for ways to content itself with something other than God and his mercy, but the spirit reigns over the flesh when we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. When Christ and his grace and his love are the objects of our faithful focus, then Christ becomes the object of our desires because through the faith that looks on Christ, God's spirit is conquering our flesh. And leading us into the fruit of righteousness. And this is really everything that Paul proclaims all throughout the book of Galatians. Up in chapter 6 and verse 5. Don't, you don't have to just listen. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or neither these, these Jewish works of the law, they don't mean anything, but the only thing that matters if you're in Christ is faith working through love. That's how it works. Genuine faith, it's focused on its object. Jesus Christ and all He's done produces love because faith looks to the cross which pushes away all our guilt and all our fear and all our pride and all our greed and gives us an appetite not for the things that cause Jesus to get nailed to the cross but to honor the one who died for us. And to savor God's strength more than our own. And to love Him who loved us so much. And that love, remember, is a fruit of the Spirit of God that gets produced when we look to Him in faith. Love is what faith produces. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. It means that the the way to walk by the Spirit is to have faith, to look upon the objects of faith, to rest in Christ and His work and all of the promises of God that are yes in Him. Verse 5 here of chapter 5, Paul says, Through the Spirit, by faith we wait for the hope of righteousness. Faith. When our hearts rest on God's promises, when we are content with God and His sovereign will and His gracious work, then we are waiting through the Spirit by faith and walking and being led by the Spirit to produce fruit. Chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were confined under the law. Before I had faith, I was, I was climbing up those railroad tracks in my own strength. But faith liberates me from being under that burden. Because now I can rest by faith in what Jesus has done to redeem me. And I am freed from the burden of having to earn God's favor. And here, verse 18 of chapter 5, therefore I'm not under the law. You see? How do we seek to be led by the Spirit and walk by Him, therefore? By faith, by meditating on the faithful, trustworthy preciousness of God's promises. And on all that He has done to redeem me. And in all that the begotten Son has done to, to, to lift that impossible burden off my shoulders for me and give Himself up for me and pay the price for me and deliver me from the wrath of God that is to come. Until my heart is free from fear, because that perfect love casts out fear, and from guilt and from pride and from greed, I don't know how to walk by the Spirit. And this is how the Spirit leads me, through faith as I drink deeply of the promises of God in Christ in His Word. 
chapter 3, verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by way of works of the law? No, but by hearing with faith. I'm justified by faith, right? Can't earn it. Paul is simply saying this, that that faith is also the all-important, non-negotiable source of sanctification as well. Faith in Him who loved us and gave Himself up for us. So the way to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh is to hear and to meditate on the precious and magnificent promises of God in Christ. You've got to hear them, you've got to read them, contemplate them, meditate on them, trust them, delight in them, rest in them. Otherwise your flesh says, hey, there's something better. Hey, go this way instead. It'll be better, I promise. And you've got to say, no, it's never better than what God gives me in Christ. And there is no more power for you to pull me in this direction, flesh, self, than the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm jumping on that train. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me, the risen Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how Paul lives, day by day, minute by minute. I just got punched in the teeth and I raged and I went, oops, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a step down. I got to stop and go and walk by the Spirit now. Put your trust, your hope, your confidence in Christ. Cast your cares on God. Look to Christ and the promises that are yours in Him. And your life will be free from the burden of climbing the tracks and free to realize the power of the Spirit in delivering you from the desires of the flesh and rendering the fruit and the holiness of God in you. But you must regularly saturate your mind with the promises of God's Word. Otherwise, why, why, are you surprised sometimes if you're not really saturating yourself with the promises of God's Word on a regular basis and, and abiding in Christ day by day, minute by minute, minute by minute? Are you surprised that, that the fruit tree of your life is kind of dry and withered? My lawn is dry and brown, probably because I'm not watering it enough. And if I'm not, why am I surprised if my lawn is brown? Same with your life. It can't be done in your own strength. And reading your Bible isn't going to accumulate a bunch of spirituality points for you. You've got to rest in those promises. You've got to to content your soul with those promises and with the Christ of them. And let them expose all of the goodness of God to you so that through faith in that, the Spirit can continue to work to conquer fleshly desire and grow fruit from you. So rest in God's promises this week. Marinate and saturate your mind with His truth. Put earphones in and listen to it or listen to music that is singing praises to God about it. Don't let the voices of the world and your flesh and the devil be louder and more frequent and more constant. And he will continue to lead you and transform you. Out of time, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we praise you for the precious and very great promises of God that are ours in Jesus Christ, that are yes in Jesus Christ and all that he has done. Father, would you help us even now as you have exposed us to your word 
to rest in Him and to be led by the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, and to not gratify the desires of our flesh that are at war against Your Spirit. Father, may we trust the Almighty Warrior of the Holy Spirit more than we trust ourselves and more than we trust the desires of our flesh which has been crucified by Christ Jesus. And even though it's raging against us, Father, its doom is sure. Help us to be confident in You, in Your almighty power, and in Your risen Son. Father, and give us the grace of Your Holy Spirit to continue to grow, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.